Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. All right, so it says, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will also be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now, I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me, because I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to his name. Thank you guys for coming. Let's uh, let's pray and let's ask God for help this morning. Father, here we are, Lord, um, assembled before you, assembled before your word, Lord. We desire to hear from our Father. Lord, we desire a word from you. We will not be helped by the words and ideas and opinions of a man, Lord. We need to hear your holy word brought into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we come confidently because we know that this gathering is not the sum total of all of our efforts, Lord, but that you are here to meet with us. That you have come here before us, that as Jamal was inviting us in, calling us to worship, Lord, you are calling us to worship through him. You're here You're ready for your children to listen to you, and we pray, Lord, speak. We pray, Lord, that you would make this a time that when we walk out of those doors, 
we know confidently that we have met with our God, the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in uh, John 14, as, um, as Bree read. And uh, this is an awesome section. This, these few chapters here are all the, what we call the upper room discourse. So this is the night before Jesus, this is the night Jesus was betrayed, the night before he died. Um, by the way, if you guys, does anybody need a Bible? We have these little copies of John, and they can give you one if you just put your hand up. Um, you will need it, or, or a Bible. But um, this is the night um, that Jesus was betrayed. This is the night before he dies. This is between the Last Supper, which we talked about last time, and their walk to the garden where Judas, the betrayer, is going to be, and the soldiers who will arrest him. And just imagine how terrifying this moment is for Jesus. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week about uh, death row and death row inmates and innocence projects and how they try and like in that last moment, you know, they might have one day or something like that to get a stay and to try and find more evidence. Um, and just imagine the terror of people that are facing that. And, um, and then I, I was reminded here that that's what Jesus is facing right now. He is in this most terrifying place where he knows that his brutal death is imminent. And yet his concern's not for himself. Isn't that amazing? His concern is not for himself. Take a look at verse 27. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is going to leave them, guys. And it's true that Jesus is gonna, he's going to come back in three days from the dead, and he's going to spend 40 days with them. But after that, he's leaving. And he is not coming back in their lifetime. And they're beginning to understand that. Think of how that would land on these disciples. I mean, these first disciples left everything to follow Jesus for three years, right? And when we say follow Jesus... They followed him, okay, like physically. They followed him all around. They left their businesses. Fishermen left their boats and their nets. Um, the tax collector left his lucrative uh, territory for his profession. They left these things. They, they left their families. Some of their families were supportive, some were not. Some, you know, likely thought it was a cult or worse. And then they walk all over their little country, right, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah and that the kingdom has come. Even in their own hometowns, they did this. And now what? Jesus is going to just leave? What about the kingdom? Is he abandoning us? And think about what it would have meant for them personally to be used to being with Jesus, right? They were used to his constant flow of teaching. They were used to when opponents came. He knew, always knew just what to say, right? Um, Jesus, they were used to his assuring presence. They were used to his encouragement. They were used to his powerful works that he did. I mean, when life made sense, guys, and felt secure when he was around, they craved his presence. And now he's going to abandon them? They must have thought, well, you know, I guess this whole kingdom of God thing we've been talking about isn't going to happen. I guess I'll just go back to my normal work. Except Jesus starts to make clear that he expects them to somehow continue his work without him. You see how disturbing that would be? In, in verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works will he do because I go to the Father. You can imagine them thinking like, Jesus, we weren't that good at this when you were here. You know, we weren't that good at it when you were here. And now you're going to go and you're telling us, hey, guys, it's going to be great. You guys are going to do great. You're going to do better than I did. There's no evidence of that, Jesus. You know, can you see how they'd be troubled? You see how they'd be anxious and disappointed and confused? You see how they might be a little angry? You see how they might feel like they're being orphaned? What about you? Have you left everything to follow Jesus? And things maybe went well for a while. And then you hit this kind of brick wall of, of trial and temptation. And suddenly, it's getting a whole lot harder. And you wonder, did Jesus drop me? Did he orphan me? 
This isn't like it was the first few years. Well, Jesus is going to encourage these people and us in this time of difficulty when we're wondering if we've been orphaned. He's going to do it by talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what he says. Take a look at verse 18. He says to these people who feel like they're being dropped, they're being orphaned, he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. And again in verse 18, he says, I will come to you. He says in 19, you will see me. In 21, he says, I will manifest myself to you. Not to the world, but I will manifest myself to you. And then Judas has a question. Not that Judas, okay? All of a sudden, his name, which he probably liked before, has become very unfortunate. Like, not Iscariot is his new last name, right? (laughs) Hey, it's Judas, not that one. Judas says, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You know, Jesus, how are you going to do this? You say you're leaving, but then you say you're coming. You say you're going to show yourself to us, but not to the world. I don't understand. Jesus answers in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Um, Jesus is going to come to them in a whole new way, not physically. He's going to come to them in a whole new way, and so they will not be alone. And when Jesus comes, he's not coming by himself. Take a look at verse 23 again. It says, we will come to him and make our home with him. So what he's saying is that he, Jesus, and God the Father are going to somehow come and make their home with them. And and they're they're not even coming alone. Because in the text we realize that they're coming by the Holy Spirit. And this and other texts are the reason why as Christians we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is one God eternally existing in three persons. When we say person, we don't mean human. When we say person, we mean that that each person in the Trinity has mind, will, emotions, can have a relationship with each other, which they've had from all eternity, can have a relationship with us. And it's important, guys, to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's very easy to slip into language talking about the Holy Spirit as an it instead of a he. And it's probably because of the name. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't sound like a person, per se. But he's a person. He's not an impersonal force. He's not something we use. He's not something we get control of. He's not some, something that we channel. He's a he. He's a person. And Jesus makes that clear because he calls him another helper, right? Implying that, that the Holy Spirit is, is a person and a divine person, just like the Father and the Son. And so this person, this word for helper is the word parakletos, uh, paraclete, people say not parakete, paraclete, parakletos. And it's hard to capture the meaning of this word in English, and you'll see it translated a bunch of different ways. Yours might say counselor or comforter or helper or advocate. Um, counselor is a pretty good word for this, but not the, like a camp counselor, okay? And not like a marriage counselor even. The word that counselor here is like legal counselor, Okay, so if you're one of those people on death row and, you know, the Innocence Project took up your case to dig in the evidence, that would be the kind of helper you needed in a a time of desperation. He's that kind of helper. And so when you think of counselor, think of legal counselor, legal counsel. Or uh, the word comforter is good unless we're thinking of him as like a comforter, you know, like he's some sort of nice little blanket that we wrap on and have warm feelings. That's not what it means. And nor is he someone who's going to come along and give us kind of a psychological back rub, right? He is a comforter in the sense that he is providing exactly the help we need. He's there. He's coming alongside us in our time of trial. He's a presence that comes when we're alone and we find out we're not alone. He's a comforter in that way. The ESV translates it helper. I think that's best, except we need to remember that he's not a helper that's beneath us. 
He is a helper that's superior to us. He is God himself, and he possesses limitless power. So he's a helper, but a helper with teeth, a helper with power, a helper that comes alongside us to give us aid. And so these disciples, they're troubled, right? And they're anxious. And Jesus turns it around on them and encourages them and tells them that his leaving is the best thing that could ever happen to him. Isn't that wild? He doesn't just go, hey, I know it's rough, but it's gonna be okay. He goes, this is gonna be better. This is gonna be the best thing that ever happened to you. Because these disciples, these first disciples, are living on the verge of a radical new shift in how God relates to his people. They're like right on the edge of this huge shift in human history. And it's not like the disciples, you know, don't know who the Holy Spirit is or have had no experience with him. You remember they were sent out as the 70 or the 72. They were sent out in the power of the Spirit. They're casting out demons. They're doing all these things in the power of the Spirit. But look at verse 17. 17 shows what this shift is, and it's subtle. You might miss it. In verse 17, he says, you know him. Jesus says, you know the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you. And then what's the last part? And will be in you. That's the difference. He was with them, but he'll be in them. So about 50 days from when Jesus says this at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is gonna enter his people in a new and amazing way, in a way that we today experience. Isn't that exciting? So here's um, the day Jesus was, the, the day before Jesus was betrayed, that's this evening. The next day he's gonna be crucified, that's Friday. He's going to be raised from the dead on Sunday. And then he's gonna be around physically for 40 days, showing himself to be fine. Touch me, let me eat some food. 40 days he spent with them. And then he ascends. And then there's a 10-day period there between the ascension and Pentecost, which would be the worst time to be a Christian, I would think. <laughs> you don't have the physical Jesus, you don't have the Holy Spirit in the way that he's coming. It's a bad time. The other bad time would be that Saturday, right? They call it Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. That would probably be a very low time to be a Christian as well. But this is the age of the spirit that he's talking about. And I want to show you guys why this is such a big deal. I want to show you guys why Jesus saying, it's better that I go away, makes sense. And part of the, the way you're going to understand this is you have to understand how God's connected with his people in the past. So if we start with Genesis, we start in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God came into the garden to spend time with his people. It said he'd walk with them in the cool of the day. He would spend time with them. He would enjoy them. He enjoyed them as a father enjoys their children, as children enjoy their father. They had this wonderful relationship. Didn't last long. In Genesis 3, those first people rebel against God. And, and, and the big tragedy of what happened after that is they were banished from the presence of God. They, they were sent away. The tragedy of the fall is the loss of the presence of God. But you see that God doesn't totally leave them alone, right? Throughout Genesis, he keeps appearing to people. He appears to people like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Jacob, right? And appearances, not dwelling with them, but appearing to them. And then in Exodus, God sends Moses to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt, right? And as he does, they go and they get the law, and then they get the constant presence of God among them which was the big thing that defined them. Even more than the law, they were defined by a people that had the constant presence of God. And the Holy Spirit was among them, right? Do you remember how he was actually physically visible in a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day to lead them and guide them? And he was present in the tabernacle. You guys remember, they didn't have a, te a temple at that time because they were on, on the move, right, for 40 years. And so um, they had a tent that was like a temple. And in that tent was something called the Ark of the Covenant. And in that space, the Holy of Holies in there was the very presence of God's spirit. And that's what made them a people. In fact, in Exodus 33, God, frustrated with them, says, you know what, guys? Go ahead and go without me. 
And what does Moses say? He says, no, we're not going anywhere if you're not coming. He says, your, your presence makes us a people. Your presence is what makes us distinct. If you're not coming with us, I'm not going at all. I'll just stay here. It'll sit in, right? <laughs> Fast forward 480 years, around 1000 BC, Solomon builds a temple. Finally, they make a solid construction. So what the tabernacle was, the temple becomes. And inside that place, once again, there's the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's very presence dwelled. And you guys remember that you couldn't go in there. It wasn't like you could go, hey, I'm going for my quiet time. Let's go to the Holy of Holies. No, there was a thick veil there, a thick veil that kept everybody out. It said, you're a sinner. You can't come in. The only person that could come in was once a year the high priest went in with a sacrifice. It was a big statement to say, God's presence is not 100% yours to have. And uh, in 1 Kings 8, it's so cool when they built the temple and God's presence dwelled in there, they could tell. It said, when the priest came out from the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Those were good times. That was a good time to be the people of God, to know that God's presence dwelled in your midst. The temple was the meeting place between heaven and earth. The temple was the place where God made contact with the world. It was a portal between the ordinary world and heaven, and it was theirs. Sadly, through disobedience in 587, Israel's conquered by Babylon, the temple's destroyed, and the ark disappears. Okay, and so at this point, like only Harrison Ford and, um, and some conspiracy YouTubers know where it is. We don't know where it is. We don't know where it's been for, for 2,500 years. And that was a huge blow to the people of God. Do you guys realize, like by the time in the New Testament, when the high priest would go in there once a year and offer a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies and go through that veil, do you know what they saw? It's empty. <laughs> There's no ark in there. What a letdown, huh? And this is the high day when you're gonna offer a sacrifice. And you, well, I guess I'll sprinkle it on the wall. You know, it's empty. The presence of God had departed. And throughout the Old Testament, guys, the Holy Spirit did appear in other ways, but he usually only appeared, I'm, keep in mind, I'm saying usually only appeared to people of significance. So judges, kings, prophets, people that had important roles, not every believer. And when he did come in power, he usually came upon them. It's very rare in the Old Testament to hear about the Holy Spirit being in a person. There are a few people. But for the most part, the Holy Spirit came upon somebody. The Spirit of the Lord came upon somebody. You hear that language over and over again. So it's significant people. It's upon, not in. And it's temporary. He would come and he would depart. You guys remember in Psalm 51, when, um, when David's broken over his sin, one of the things he says is, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That happened. <laughs> that happened to Saul. He saw it. And so he, he was pleading with God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But what's really cool is throughout the Old Testament prophets, you see prophecy of an age coming when the Holy Spirit would dwell in his people, all of them, permanently. And this is something that the prophets are obsessed with. They're obsessed with it because that is the very thing they lost in Genesis 3 was the presence of God personally. They wanted the return of the lost presence of God. And we see that in a lot of passages. One of them is in Ezekiel 36. He says, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes. That when God's people received the Holy Spirit, not upon them, but in them, it would transform them from the inside out. This was the promise. This is what they were looking forward to. And the Holy Spirit, once he came into these people, 
us into believers, he would also empower for ministry. We see that in Joel 2. In Joel 2, he talks about the later days, and he says, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see the all? That's super important. It was only specific people before. He's saying all flesh. And listen to how the all flesh is out. Your sons and your daughters, so men and women, shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall have visions. So on old and young, on men and women, even on your male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. It doesn't matter class, doesn't matter occupation, doesn't matter where you are. The spirit himself would be in them. And then it's really cool because when Jesus comes on the scene in the beginning of the Gospel of John, we see that, it's a, that John says that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt right there is the word tabernacled. Very intentional on his part. He says, the temple's back. The temple's a person. So Jesus himself was the new temple on earth, the new meeting place between God and man, the portal between the ordinary world and God himself. So the question might be now is, Jesus has ascended. Where's the temple now? And people have various answers to that. There are certain religions and groups that still build temples um, and still say, you know, God's always wanted a temple, and so we're building temples still. They still do this thing. Where is the presence of God? Jesus says in verse 17, doesn't he? He says, you know him, the Spirit, because he dwells with you, but he'll be in you. The new temple on earth is ordinary believers that the Spirit's dwelling inside forever. Verse 16 says, and I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper who will be with you forever. Guys, listen really carefully to this. You are the temple of God, if you're a believer. Isn't that intense? I mean, this is huge. And you read this in Paul, he talks about it a lot. You are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christians, you are the meeting place between heaven and earth. You're that border. You, regular you. You having a hard time getting along with family members, you. You with a broken down car, you. You working retail, you. You struggling to get a good quiet time, you. You're the temple of God. Isn't that amazing? God lives in you. You are the place where God is making contact with the world. And that's why Jesus says in John 16, seven, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him. Guys, we live in the very best time to be alive and seek the presence of God. There wasn't a better time. There wasn't even a better time to be around when Jesus was around. And Peter came to find that. He told Peter, he said, you know, I know you really enjoy being with me, but it's gonna be better for you. And we live in that time. We have an access to God that the, whole, that the Old Testament believers only dreamed about. Even the big name guys. Isn't that amazing? Okay, if that's true, and it is, I'll tell you what, I have not even begun to explore the amazing gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Have you? I mean, if what Jesus said that it's better now, are we experiencing it? Are we living into it? Could there be more to have? There is more to have. There is more to have. And guys, I think that a lot of times, we're a lot like the people that Paul met in Ephesus when he asked them about the Holy Spirit. You know what they said? These are believers. They said, oh, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. And he's like, oh, there is. 
Let me have you receive him. I feel like a lot of times we live that way. We barely live up to the kind of spiritual life that Old Testament people had available to them. And guys, our biggest need in this area, I think, is, is the word expectancy. How much do we expect? How much do we think's available of a connection with God through the Holy Spirit? And I think we need to build expectancy and seek him more in three areas. I'm gonna do them quick. First one is communion with God. The second one is transformation by God. And the third one is power from God. So first I wanna talk, we should expect and seek more based on what Jesus has told us of communion with God. You have God himself living in you. That's amazing. I think a lot of it, oh yeah, I've heard that before. God lives in your body, in your carcass, in here. That's amazing. And, and he wants to teach you. Take a look at verse 25. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has sent in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I've said to you. Now, these verses specifically apply to those first disciples, and I'll tell you how. The Holy Spirit was the one that was gonna bring to mind all the things Jesus had done and said so that they would remember them, so they would record them, so they would uh, reflect on them properly, so they could give you books like John, okay? That's a promise to them. But guys, secondarily, it's a promise to us. The same Holy Spirit who moved those original disciples to write this book lives in you and wants to speak to you in a fresh way through this book. You guys realize that? Because a lot of times we're like, oh, you know, Jesus walking around with him, he's talking to him, he doesn't talk to me, he does. He talks through this. And you could say, oh, well, just through a book, no. Have you guys ever been reading through the Bible and you're like kind of reading, and all of a sudden, there's a section that just kind of comes alive to you? And sometimes you don't take it as a good thing <laughs> because you were like, oh, why did I read 1 Corinthians? I knew that was in there. You know, like, <laughs> I knew that was there. And it comes alive and you're like, God's speaking this to me. That's the Holy Spirit, guys. It would be a really good idea to underline that and make some notes, okay? Because that's God speaking to you. That's God's very word coming alive through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves to teach us about Christ. The Holy Spirit loves to bring remembrance all the things Jesus has said. Here's the thing, though. If he brings to remembrance all the things Jesus has said, we need to dwell in this book to the degree where he has something he can bring to remembrance, Okay, the more we read the scriptures, the more we're giving words for the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance. These are the words he speaks to us, and he really does speak in a powerful way throughout our lives, but we have to be in this to give words for him to remind us about, okay? And I think that's super important, and, and God still speaks. Guys, I would just say this week, find 30 minutes of undistracted time, and don't make excuses. Don't be like, well, I have little kids and stuff. You get your spouse to watch. You get somebody to watch. Get yourself 30 minutes, Open this book without distractions. You don't bring your phone. You don't need to Instagram this moment. You can Instagram it after. Get rid of your phone. 30 minutes, you open this book and you say, Lord, speak to me. Show me what I need to know from here. One, one wise pastor once said, an open Bible and a pad of paper will do plenty to reveal everything that God wants to say to you. He will speak to you. He will speak to you. And, and the cool thing is, is that when we open this word, especially the gospel, and you say, Spirit, please show me Christ. He will cause Christ to stand forth from this book in a way that you can't ignore. It's amazing. It's amazing. He said before, he goes, you'll see me again. I don't think he was talking about the resurrection encounter. We see him in the word. And think about what this indwelling spirit means for your prayer life. I mean, talk about availability, you know? 
Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in you. I have a mentor, Will Wyatt, who I always say is like super old, and he's getting super older. Um, but he's, he is a wonderful man of God. And one of the funny things he talks about, he talks about the indwelling of the Spirit. He's, I've seen him do this a bunch of times. He goes, you know, if you wanted to pray, you could just pray like this. Hey, Father. Uh... Right? He goes, remember that God is in you. You know, he's not somewhere really far away. You'd be like secret security, you know, <laughs> speaking into your collar, right? God lives in you. And I would just ask you, are you living with an open line of communication? It's kind of like you live in that Old Testament temple in the Holy of Holies all the time. So I'm thinking like when we're walking, when we're driving, are we, are we communicating to the Lord? Are we laying our burdens before the Lord? I love uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And one of the things about, you know, Tevi is a complainer, right? But the cool thing about him is that he complains to God. He's cruising along. He's like, ah, you know, this it's broke down. I mean, my cart broke down. He's complaining, you know? We should be like that with the Lord. We should be constantly in communication with him, right? Um, I've been thinking about lately, you know, when you can't sleep. How many of you guys have trouble sleeping sometimes? Okay, most people are probably like, probably caffeinated too much or something. But we have trouble sleeping, Right? And it's frustrating. You lay in bed and you're like, you keep looking at the clock. And then like the more it goes on, the more anxious you get, irritated, and the less likely you are to go to sleep. And I've been thinking about a lot lately about like David. He used to talk about seeking the Lord in the night watches. And I always used to think like, that dude's another level. You know, I was just like, <laughs> but that's the perfect time to do it, isn't it? That's what I've discovered lately. Because my two thing, issues with prayer are distraction and sleepiness. Well, nobody's going to mess with me while they think I'm asleep. And sleepiness, yes, I've got that taken care of. I can't sleep. I've had some amazing times. Think about that next time. You can have some amazing times of communion with God. He dwells in you. So firstly, we should expect more from communion with God. Secondly, we should expect more of transformation from God. Guys, the Holy Spirit wants to help us obey all the things Christ has commanded. That's what he's in you to do. Take a look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, seems like they needed to hear it more than once. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, right? Guys, the Spirit's desire is to make us more holy. And there's a tip off because it's in his name, okay? He's the Holy Spirit. So he comes, he lives in you, and you know what he wants to do? He goes, he looks around inside of you and he goes, we need to remodel this place a little bit. We need to clean this place up. What a blessing to have God himself living in us, wanting to transform us from the inside out. It's an awesome work he does. And one of the works that he does is he gives us more and more a delight for God's law. The same author that wrote this wrote a letter, and in it, John said, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And listen to this. And his commandments are not burdensome. You think about like, did that verse ever like land on you go like, wait, what? John, I want to hang out with me a little more. That doesn't make sense. His commandments, as God works more and more in our hearts, we love his law more and more. God's law, guys, is a beautiful thing. I think a lot of people, the law has gotten like a bad rap because a lot of people have used it for the wrong thing. If you use it rightly, it's great. It is not made for you to take and try to prove your own goodness to God or other people. That's not what the law is for. And if you use it wrongly, then yes, it's a mess. But the law is beautiful, guys. It's meant for a good thing. What's it for? I'll give you three reasons for the law. It shows us what's right and wrong. We need that, okay? We need God's commands to go, oh, I thought that was right. No, that's wrong. God's law also shows us that we need Jesus, right? 
Because as we see it, we go, I don't measure up. I know God requires 100% perfection. I don't have that. I need Jesus. Do you guys ever feel like that when you're reading through the Bible? You're like, oh, this is good, this is good. Man, I need Jesus. Okay, that's the law doing that, right? But what else does the law do? Guys, the law shows us how to intelligently love God. The law shows us how to intelligently love God. Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Have you guys ever heard of the love languages? Okay, I'm not gonna get all psychological on you, but there's a book and I haven't even read it because you don't really need to. I could tell you what you need to know right now. <laughs> love languages, there's five different ones. There's quality time, words of affirmation, physical touch, gifts, acts of service. And the idea is you're in relationship with somebody and you love them, you need to show them that you love them through something they receive as love. Does that make sense? So for certain people, it's like, oh, I really like the quality time, don't really want you to touch me, um, but if you could say nice things about me, that'd be great, okay? Then there's other people like, touch me, you know? We had this guy in our college ministry, I shouldn't tell the story, but we had this guy in our college ministry that we were, we were talking about, we weren't even talking about this, okay? And he's all, have you heard of the love languages? And they were like, yeah, and he goes, Mine's physical touch. And I'm like, what are we supposed to do with that? Like, weirdo? Like, 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 you know, like, what's the application here? But anyway, so, but it is important, and you guys that are married, and you guys are in a relationship, it's super important for you to know. You want to make sure that you show love in the way they receive his love. Guys, the law of God is God's love language. You want to know how to love him? His commandments show how to love him. And so it doesn't make sense for us to go like, well, I don't like what that says, and I don't like what this says, and the God I believe in wouldn't say that. He's given you his love languages. He said, if you love me, do this. And so it's for us to go, oh, good, I'm so thankful that Jesus died for my sins. I would love to show you how much I love you, and it's so helpful that you've told me how. Guys, the law is a beautiful thing when we use it rightly, and the Holy Spirit wants to cause us to love the law of God more and more because we love God more and more. He's restructuring our loves when he's in there. Lastly, we should expect and seek more of power from God for ministry. Um, we didn't read it in the beginning, but look at verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Notice the word whoever. <laughs> a lot of times we go like, oh, that must be the apostles. Well, it says whoever. Whoever believes in me will do greater works. You think, well, okay, what are these greater works? You know, these greater miracles, you know, and that's kind of hard to imagine. You know, Jesus like raising people from the dead and stuff like that. Kind of a hard bar. Um, but, you know, we can know what those greater works are if we look at the lives of the first disciples. And they didn't do more miracles, okay? They didn't do more amazing miracles or anything. What did happen in their lives? Well, you guys remember before the Spirit came at Pentecost, how many people were in that upper room? 120 people. Right? And I'm sure he had followers somewhere else, but these were the ones that were you know, kind of bound together in Jerusalem, gonna follow him, 120. The spirits poured out on them, and Peter says that what happened there when the spirit came upon them and, and gave them spiritual gifts, he said that this was what the prophet Joel had promised about the presence and the power of God. He said um, that it's what Joel said, that it will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. He said, that's it. It's happening. This is the thing we've been waiting for, Right? And in that first day, their number went from 120 to 3,000. And then in a short amount of time, it was 5,000. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the Holy Spirit working through the spiritual gifts 
of God's people to make Jesus known. And I'm not saying it's going to look just like that. But I am saying that we should expect for God to work through us in a way that wasn't seen in the Old Testament. It's a new thing. And we live, guys, in the same age. I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, Hal, and we were talking about these things. And he goes, he goes it's still the age of the Spirit. It's still the age of Joel. Joel was talking about the last days. These are them. It's ever since Jesus came and he was resurrected and ascended, we've been in this period of the outpouring of the Spirit. And I would just say to you guys, pray boldly, right? I think we get in a mindset that we don't expect God to do much. We were, I was talking to a brother this morning about the work that, he, that, he's, that God is doing in his um, 80-something-year-old mother, you know? Somebody that we didn't think, you know, had any inclination to the Lord, and she's reading through John, and she's being transformed. I think about my own father, you know, I, I came to, to faith when I was 13. He didn't become a believer until probably um, 20 years later, something like that. And I'd stop praying for him because I just it was painful to pray for him. I didn't think God was going to change him. And then God transformed him and brought him to spiritual life. And my mother, too. And it's like, we need to expect, we need to live expectantly. I mean, which family members or friends or neighbors do you know that don't know Jesus? Guys, we exist as a church, and this is the statement that we have, to help everyone take their next step towards Jesus. Like, that's why we're here, right? We're here to help everyone take their next step towards Jesus. Pray, guys, expecting him to move and to save. And I think we need to hear this, especially in the summer. You know, summertime's kind of like, like, okay, we're in break mode, you know? But summer is an excellent time for mission, guys. You invite people to church, they actually come more in the summer. There's this myth that there's this slump in the summer where nobody comes to the church. But people are, have more time freed up, many of them, teachers and people like that, not me. You know, I'm a, I'm a horse vet. We don't get the summer off. But, um, but it's a time for great mission. It's a time to connect to people. You're probably more social during this time of year. This is a time to be expectant and to pray expectantly. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? I mean, that's a new thing in our time period that the Old Testament believers did not have. Do you know what it is? Do you know how to, like Paul says, fan it into flame? You have a gift and you're like, well, you know, I'm kind of gifted in this, but it's kind of. Well, it's flickering. Paul said you can fan that thing into flame. You can get that thing going through use and knowledge and practice and affirmation. We, we need to be more expectant and seeking as we gather here, guys. As I was praying earlier, like we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in this neighborhood when we gather. This is a supernatural meeting. This is a supernatural gathering. It's more than the sum of its parts. Like sometimes we think, okay, you know, somebody's gonna bring, you know, lead worship and someone's gonna sing and somebody's gonna set up, somebody's gonna preach, somebody's gonna do these things, lead communion. And if we all do it to like a certain level, we'll see results. And I don't know what the level is. Like if we all bring 75%, like we're gonna do okay. Some people might get saved. Some people might be encouraged. If we get like below 50, like it's not, it's not like that, guys. We're here meeting with the living God. He's here already and wants to speak to us and know us. He is here to greet us and to change us. And we've seen that, guys. We've totally seen it. We've seen it in answer to prayer, all kinds of life situations, healing things, all kinds of stuff, answer to prayer. God has been very generous. And it's cool because I'm a little late to realizing these things, but God has been so gracious over the past few months to show plenty of evidence like, here I am, been here all along. Showing up doing things, whether you notice or not, you know. Guys, and, you know, one of the things people do too, Christians do, is they go, oh, well, I know what the church is. The church is teaching, worship, fellowship. So I'll get some teaching through a podcast. 
I'll get some worship on the radio, and I'll hang out with some Christian friends. I've got all the parts of church. I've got the church. Guys, you can have all the parts of a dog and not have a dog. Right? And with the church, it, it looks that gross, okay? <laughs> Spiritually. God's like, ooh, no, that's not church. God meets his people here in a special way. He talks about us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. He also talks about us together. And there's something special that happens here. And so what, what, what is all this about? Jesus wants to encourage those first troubled disciples. And he wants to encourage you today. They thought that they were abandoned. Okay? They thought they were abandoned. And maybe you do too. Maybe as a Christian, things you're going through right now, you think you're being left as an orphan. You know? You think you're being abandoned. Jesus gives you this word today and he gave this word to them to show them you're not abandoned. You're not abandoned. You know what you are? You're inhabited by the Holy Spirit. I would say that's the opposite of abandoned, right? You're not only not abandoned, you're inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And you might be here wondering, how can God come to live in me when I'm a sinner? You should be asking that. If you're not a believer, you should be asking yourself, okay, but not me, right? I'm a sinner. I deserve to be banished from God's presence like Adam was banished. Like that makes total sense to me. Um, I wouldn't have been worthy to enter that Old Testament temple, so it makes no sense that I could be the New Testament temple, right? How can God dwell in me, a sinner? And what's really cool is at the end of this passage, Jesus is going away to solve that very problem. Remember, this is an extremely terrifying night to him. And in verse 30, you see this. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But what I do, I do as the Father commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Guys, Jesus' arrest was his own choice. Don't you love this part? He goes, the ruler of this world is coming. And they're like, hmm. And then he goes, he has no claim on me. Don't you love that? He has no claim on me. Jesus is not being taken. He's giving himself. As on the cross, Jesus was not taken. He was giving. He was giving to remove our sin so that we could be the new homes of the Holy Spirit. You guys remember that really thick curtain that was in Holy of Holies blocking the way in? Mark reports that when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain got torn in two from the top to the bottom. Guys, we're no longer banished. And no matter what you've done this week, if you're trusting in Jesus as we go to communion, you're not banished. You're welcome in. And not only that, not only does, does God send Christ so he can welcome us into his home, God sent Christ to make us his home. It's better than we imagined. It's amazing. So guys, for the next few weeks as we look through John and we hear more about the Holy Spirit, let's seek the presence and the power of the Spirit. Let's not assume that the experiences we have are all we can have. You live in an age of the Spirit of nearness to God that the Old Testament believers would have done anything to experience. I was talking with a brother this week about it and he was saying, they would have killed to have what we have. And I'm like, yikes. And then I'm thinking, well, there were some killers in the bunch, you know? They would have done anything to have what you have. We need to explore it. We need to stop acting like Pentecost never happened. And we need to start exploring this amazing gift. Let's pray. Father, we, we're surprised, Lord. Um, so many times we've read about how, um, you know, our body's the temple 
for you and that, that you live in us. Lord, but when it's framed in context of the word and we hear what, what believers before Pentecost had and didn't have, Lord, we're so thankful. And Lord, I just pray that this would transfer into just an honest, fervent desire to seek your face, to seek your presence, to trust that you're there. I think one of the things that keeps me, Lord, from, from stepping out is just a fear that somehow you won't meet me there. Lord, help us to have courage, Lord, and what Jesus has taught us about the Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray for us as we go through the summer, Lord, that we would discover spiritual gifts we didn't know we had, that we would open up rooms in our lives to the Spirit to remodel that we never thought could be changed, Lord. We pray we see transformation there. We pray, Lord, that we would seek you and commune with you in a fresh way, just knowing that the door's open. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for their love for you and their desire to know you, and I pray you give them the desires of their hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash menifee.